0: When we look back to the past, collecting the kindling of stray memories and splashing the lighter fluid of any convenient association that keeps a good fire going, we often forget that the best stories are those that revolve around life, inhabiting a region and a space that's the very antithesis of nostalgia. Now, whether the form of a story is a book or a film or a TV series or a rock opera or a YouTube serial or some crazy theatrical presentation that you have to attend over several days or, in the case of Mimi Ponds, over easy, a graphic novel of working at an Oakland diner in 1978, well, the stories we tend to remember are the ones that trigger our own memories, our own experience that get us prognosticating on how we'd act in situations we've never ever lived. My name is Edward Champion, and this is The Bat Segundo Show. I met up with Mimi Pond last month to discuss Over Easy. This conversation is slightly shorter than the usual shows because this is the first of three final shows before I take a lengthy hiatus. But when we get to show number 550, I promise you, that the last of the three is going to be fairly epic. So stay tuned. In the meantime, here's Mimi Pond. Okay, so I'm here with Mimi Pond, who is most recently the author of Over Easy. Mimi, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great.
0: Fantastic. So, uh, my understanding is that Overeasy started off as a memoir that you could not sell. And this reminds me of the situation that James Fry found himself in where he uh, tried to go ahead and write a novel, mm-hmm. uh, and unsuccessfully was not able to se- he was not able to sell it, and it turned of course into a memoir which then Caused his career to basically go into shambles, and, I, and I'm wondering, you know, why there is this interesting reverse polarity when it comes to comics or the graphic novel form. And what did you do to sort of get the authenticity of Mimi versus Margaret or Madge in this particular book?
1: Well, I I think maybe it, as a as a conventional piece of fiction, it wasn't saleable, possibly because it just didn't stand out among the you know the reams and reams of manuscripts that. That editors get, or it, somehow it didn't. It just didn't compel people. And honestly, I had to just break down and admit to myself that it wanted to be comics, because that's really what I do. Oh, so it was an actual full-blown text memoir. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay,
0: okay. I didn't realize that. Yeah. What did you think? I thought it. Was, I thought actually, for some reason, that it was actually more of a stark comics-related memoir as opposed to. Um, to an actual uh, prose-based memoir, so oh. yeah. For, for some reason, I thought there was some sort of weird stylistic change in the actual course of this book. No, so, no. Okay, all right, all right. So, no.
1: Once it became a, 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 a comics form, it, it, it made much more sense. It, it all just flowed. I mean, the, the the manuscript is essentially the same. I you know I had to edit it down, and like, of course, you don't put in the writing parts of it. You know, the carefully crafted sentences where you're describing things because you're drawing them. You know, and and dialogue becomes you know speech bubbles that are coming out of people's mouths. Um, so there's there's a certain reduction that that happens, but essentially it's the same thing.
0: So did having uh, a textual framework allow you to really emphasize artistic elements that you pro- previously had not even considered? Oh, yeah. Actually, yeah. Yeah. What's I, how, such as what exactly?
1: Well, it's just you know trying to describe things that I could see in my mind. Um, I consider myself a pretty good writer, but um i i I'm a better artist you know i so my talents really are in in both writing and in drawing, and the two of them together are what work best
0: yeah but I am wondering if uh some of the supporting characters like the trash talking line cooks and uh, you know the uh... Bernardo and, and people like that if uh, if they actually perhaps came more to life through uh, the graphic novel I form. think so. Yeah.
1: I think so, yeah. Because as much as you can describe someone um, with words, um, my my real talents in describing people uh, is with drawing.
0: Give me an example of this. How can, for example, Bernardo come alive through comics that he, in a way that he didn't actually come through in terms of the original text version of this, out of curiosity?
1: Well, I think it was just easier to, to draw him um, than to than to describe him um, it I, you know I, that's a hard question because it's just um, I you know I could have spent a fair amount of time describing the way he looked um, I think with with re, with regular text you, you know Um, people have an idea, everyone has a different idea in their mind, like you read a Dickens novel and he's incredible at describing people, he's just amazing, and you, you know, you, every book you read of his, you've cast some brilliant, English actor in the role of you know, Mr. Fezziwig and yeah. s- all those characters, and you're you know, you're just seeing the movie in your mind.
0: Um, but as we've seen with Dan Clowes, uh, you're sort of starting to cast comic book-related characters into the inevitable film adaptation, uh-huh. so it works for that as well. Sure. So you know? Yeah. So how does imagination work for such a visual form, do you think?
1: Well, um...
0: Imagination on your part uh, and imagination upon the reader's part.
1: Well, I mean, you're leaving less to people's imagination when you're drawing it for them, but th- at the same time, it's opening up this whole world for them to explore, this you know, world on paper. Um, when I was a kid, I always thought it was really unfair that kids got all the picture books, and then you grow- grew up, and they took away the pictures. Yeah. And so it's, it's even more funny that I wound up doing this. Okay.
0: <laughs> Got gotcha. you. Well, the Imperial Cafe is based on Mama's Royal Cafe. And when I lived in the Bay Area, I actually went in there a couple of times. Oh, yeah. um, and I, of course, did the obligatory Googling and yelping. And um, what was interesting is is that it pretty much looks uh, almost exactly the same if yes. this is actually a, a good guide to, yeah. to go by as, as, um, as your book. And I'm wondering, you know, what did you do to, I suppose... In ways of in way of reference shots, I mean, did you rely on a very sort of explicit photographic uh, basis for this, or did yeah, you I mean, what did you use your imagination? i i uh-huh. had
1: I had not only photographs that were taken uh, back in that era by one of my coworkers who uh, was the only one who was smart enough to take a bunch of pictures and actually make an album of them, which was a and then he allowed me to borrow it and scan those pictures, and that was a tremendous resource. but also I've been back to visit, you know, I go back and visit all the time. My son's been in in at California College of the Arts, which used to be my used to be California College of Arts and Crafts, my school where I went to school. Um, he's graduating on Saturday, so I am. But even before that, I have been in close contact with many of my old friends f- from that era, um, and so I've been back repeatedly and take ha- taken many many photos. And even with all the pictures I have, there's always there's always a point at which I've I've got to draw something, I don't have it from the right angle, and I just have to make it up. But yeah. at this point, I feel like I could draw it in my sleep.
0: You don't have any of the sketchbooks that you had at the time? Or? I
1: still, I have the sketchbooks I had at the time, but I wasn't, you know, I was a waitress. I wasn't I wasn't sitting around drawing the restaurant all the time. I might have a few drawings from from that era, but, but you know, you, you can't waitress and draw. You can't <laughs> even waitress and write down notes um, for the most part. I mean, you're just working. I mean, I... I spent a lot of time talking about how this could be a story with, um, with the manager, who's the, the character, Laszlo, Laszlo Marenge in yeah. the book was actually his, his real nom de plume and in real life was Nestor Marzipan. And he and I used to talk <laughs> about this that this definitely was a story and it was something we wanted to collaborate on, but we couldn't quite wrap our heads around it at the time. And then finally, I moved away and moved to New York and he and I corresponded and he was a wonderful correspondent. And, and
0: Did he review a lot of the art in various stages? Or? No,
1: this was, is this was long before I ever okay. started drawing. This is like in the 80s. Oh, and, wow, okay. And um, he would you know, send me letters with all the latest gossip about what was going on. So I was able to later pull from those letters episodes that happened even after I left and incorporate them into the book. So some of the things happened while I was there. Some of the things happened after I left. Some of the things happened, but they didn't happen to me. You know it's fiction, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I really wanted to capture the spirit and the essence of what that particular time and place was like uh, and it was the most gratifying to me gratifying thing to me is that the the people that i I used to work with who have seen the book um, seem to think that I've done that, so yeah. that's really satisfying.
0: What specific points did you really feel compelled to? capture of 1978. I mean, did, how could you do 1978 right while also adhering to the exigencies of narrative, which requires a kind of linear path and all that? I mean, what, what was the organizational process like? Out of curious. I,
1: you know, I was just remembering things the way they were then, um, things that really stuck with me. And it wasn't Really, while I... I mean, and I worked on this over a 15-year period from about, the you know, 1998 until, you know, last, early this year. And, and um, it wasn't so much that I was like, I'm going to capture 1978. I was like, just, I'm going to remember it the way I remember it. Yeah. So it wasn't anything um, that uh, specifically deliberate. Yeah. It was just, you know the The time and the place and what it felt like at the time and uh, i did i I did take notes over the years you know from from the time I left up until you know in nineteen nineteen eighty two up until about nineteen ninety eight and I also went back to visit many times and i I talked to my former coworkers and who very generously shared their experiences yeah. with me that I also incorporated into the story.
0: So, I mean, w- were there any uh, stories or anecdotes that were pure uh, romantic forms of nostalgia or things you wish would have happened, uh, anything along those lines?
1: No, I, I don't think of it as nostalgia because I, 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 you know, there were there were too many hard lessons learned um, and, it was and too, too rough to
0: be nostalgic.
1: It was, yeah, it was too rough to be nostalgic, and there were too many people who who wound up down the rabbit hole of drug abuse for too many years to to have like you know the the dewy glow of nostalgia around it. it you know, it it was it was one of those situations where it was really fun up until the point where it wasn't fun anymore. Yeah. And there's going to be a part two. I'm working on that now. I know that, yeah. And part two gets darker.
0: Well, what about part one? I mean, uh, did the darkness threaten to? Overwhelm some of the kind of romance of the diner, the uh, the kind of effervescent look of the place, and the feel of the actual book.
1: No, I don't think so. I mean, I I've always been in love with the look of that place, um, and and it just it you know the first play, time I walked into it, it just felt like home. So, I could just you know I could just draw the, that counter and that you know those booths and all that stuff endlessly
0: <laughs> yeah well what is a diner like the imperial i mean you know what can it teach diners of today what does a 21st century diner uh, not have that the imperial did have
1: well there were no rules
0: <laughs> oh.
1: you know and at the time it was like in the 60s you know it's like the hippies threw out all the rules and yeah. in the 70s you know we looked up and we we uh just said like oh the rules are gone so which ones do we put back and which ones do we leave out and how does this all work and it was kind of up to you to figure it out there was no one saying just say no yeah so everyone was going whoa drugs yeah drugs are fun like no one said you know that cocaine thing that's not such a good idea
0: yeah
1: yeah, yeah jazz musicians used to snort cocaine in the 30s so it's really cool right yeah you know and and you know, kids are always stupid, They're, and and you know this is this is w- what drug abuse is about. Like like heroin, like I, people are just stupid enough to think oh, I'm not going to get hooked.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what was the common what was the common ground of such a place? I mean, you know, you you mentioned early on how uh, the disco wars is what united the punks and the hippies, mm-hmm. and then in the at the end of the book we see this poetry night in which uh, everybody is kind of allowed their particular moment does it really sort of take a place to unite so many subcultures so many groups i mean you know what was the kind of uh, cross-pollination of the time that you were trying to capture here
1: well the uniting force in that particular place was laszlo merengue the 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 manager um who would everybody told
0: their problems to yeah yeah
1: everyone told him their problems and he he was one of those people that just made you feel like you were the most important person in the room and he He validated your experiences by telling you, like, you know, no, the fact that you have observed this and you think that about it is meaningful, not just like, oh, you're full of shit. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and, um, the other thing was like, yes, this is important and we need to write this down because we're going to make some kind of art about this later. Um, And that was very important to me. And it made all the difference. I mean, I don't think I ever could have worked in any other restaurant after that. I never, I I tried, you know, I I made a a few futile stabs at putting in applications after I left that place. But luckily, (laughs) I say luckily, no one ever hired me again. And then I began my career as a cartoonist, and I never had to go back to that. Um, But it never would have been the same, you know. I mean... um, You know, his motto was the customer is always wrong, which did not really mean that you were entitled to give bad service. In fact, we all kind of prided ourselves on giving good service. It was more like he had your back, you know, and if anyone gave you any crap, he would he would back you up.
0: And presumably the walls between the kitchen and the restaurant were thick enough to prevent any of the customers hearing all of the profane screeches and well, all they that. Well, yeah. you know,
1: I think at the time, you know, people were down for that, too, because yeah. that's the kind of place it was. You know, like yeah. a, a, a cook would drop, you know, the the end of his, his roach into an omelet, and the customer would find it and go, oh, you know, I found this, and ha, ha, ha. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How charming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, did you make any efforts before 1998 to write about this diner at all, Oh, yeah, yeah. Like
1: I said, I took lots of notes, and I made outlines, and I made lists of characters, and I just... Up until my son was born in 1992, my first child, I didn't really, I hadn't figured out what the core of the story was, and once my son was born, I I realized that this man who we all thought was our groovy beatnik dad, himself actually had a family at home, but he was, you know, this guy in his late 30s off partying with a bunch of early 20-somethings, instead of being at home with his family. And, you know, I'm, like, with my, my beautiful new baby, and I'm thinking, why would you ever want to do anything but be with your family? Because this is the best thing ever. And I was like, oh, so maybe he's not, like, the perfect person I thought he was, and this is, like, much more complex and dark. And that's when I, the wheels really started turning for me.
0: So it was a way of uh, challenging the established legacy that uh, had been set down between you two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, this book actually reminded me of uh, Sturdo Nan's Last Night at the Lobster. I'm not sure if you've read that. Uh-uh. It's, it's a wonderful Novel. It's a very short one, but it really depicts uh, what it is to, you know, work in a restaurant. And uh, many of the sort of um, uh, the way that you actually approach it, and it also reminded me also of uh, Todd Haynes's uh, adaptation of Mildred Pierce, where he does much of the same thing, where you really understand how the restaurant works by depicting, um, you know, how people work and the routines and all that. And, I, and I'm wondering, you know, what you did to sort of hone in on the right moments to really dramatize that, because I really don't feel we see enough art or fiction that really dramatizes working class life like that in that kind of procedural way.
1: You know, none of that was really deliberate. It was just my remembering what it was like to do all those things and and making the shift from being in art school, where, which was a very kind of ivory ivory tower existence that, that I, you know, I enjoyed that up to a point, but then I, I thought, you know, this is going to be ending soon. And I'm going to, you know, this bubble is going to burst and I'm going to be out on the street. And so I might as well face up to it and just embrace, you know, this, this whole working class aesthetic. And I was, I was really primed to be a dishwasher. You know, I mean, it was the best job for me at the time. And there was, there was a, a feeling of being part of, part of this, you know, a, a cog in a machine and a kind of living, breathing machine of, of people in this team of people all working together in this restaurant a rhythm there was a real rhythm to that, that I, that's what i really wanted to capture
0: it was more of a clack than art school for you
1: it was you know it's it, i oh, I, was just gonna say I have so much so many more vivid memories of the restaurant than i do of art school. I can barely remember people from my art school. There's a handful of people I remember. I remember doing the work, I remember my teachers, but the restaurant, it becomes this vivid, alive thing in my mind, whereas art school is just hazy.
0: Why do you think that is?
1: I think there were just so many more connections with people, you know, I mean, I always had my nose to the grindstone, you know, trying to make art, and and there wasn't that much engagement socially. Yeah.
0: It makes me actually want to ask you. Uh, I mean, there's the general sort of green, chromatic uh, feel of this particular book, except for early on, where we see this guy who's basically saying art is dead, and he has completely jet black hair. And I and I and I was looking forward to, as I continued reading your book. Okay, where's the next guy or the next person with black hair? But Nothing showed up, and I'm wondering, you know, why that was.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way, but that really was Ted Falcone of the Seminole uh-huh. uh, Bay Area punk band Flipper. Flipper yeah, that he was like a, a year ahead of me in school, and he had graduated, but he was like continuing to hang around the school like the Fonz, <laughs> and and just like you know, in you just butt into your face and and say, "Hey, man, art's dead, man. You got to start a band, man." Yeah, and yeah.
0: So by, by dint of being the celebrity, he gets the black hair where everybody else had the green. Yeah, well,
1: I mean, he wasn't even a celebrity at that point, but, yeah. he, you know, he was like... a notable
0: the- figure, I guess, yeah.
1: It, you know, at that point, it wasn't even notable. It was just, he was, like, starting a band. He was just starting a band, man. So if he was starting a the band, then, man, everyone had to start a band.
0: Yeah. Well, this, this leads me to ask. I mean, the 70s were a time of bad art and plentiful bad music. However, did you maintain a, a impeccable set of aesthetic standards through this time? How did anybody do this? Well,
1: yeah. The, the se- See, that's the other thing about the 70s. Kids think of it like they have this whole romantic gloss over Like, oh, disco, it must have been so much fun and ooh, and... And you're like, no, it was like harvest gold and avocado green and orange and brown. There was so much brown and wood tones, and it was just horrible. And so I think actually the fallback position was was um, to go retro. You know, like we were all shopping in thrift stores. We were all you know wearing clothes from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s with a whole different aesthetic because the 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 fashions and the the earth tones. And, and the popular music of the 70s up until, you know, the mid to late 70s was just hideous. Yeah. You know, it was just like, oh, you know, I was just like, are you kidding me? I like, this is my decade. This is what I get. This is it.
0: Yeah, Peter Frampton <laughs> bread and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah America. <laughs> Horse with no name. Yeah. <laughs>
0: It's so good to be back on the range. Well, uh, you know, why did you choose green for the uh, chromatic for this? I'm curious.
1: Well, you know, the restaurant interior is actually red and green because it was a a Chinese restaurant built in, I think, around like 1918, 1920. Beautiful looking. And I I couldn't, you know, I just decided I was going to go with one tone. It would be easier and cheaper to print. I would be more likely to get it published that way than if I did it in color. And color was just sort of overwhelming to like every page you're like making all these color decisions even if you have a palette picked out you're like you know what color is that gonna be what oh.
0: green's enough to counteract the toxic qualities of brown and red and all that
1: yeah so the, the green it, i don't know it just resonated that particular shade of green for me um and I had, I had really been inspired by Alison Bechtel's Fun Home, and that was really what the kickoff for me was, the turning point was I saw her book, and I, I had seen many graphic novels, but I hadn't seen anything that seemed like something I could do. Yeah. It, and and her, her book was like a, a, a template it Was like oh like yes like that I could do it something like that. Of course I, I don't draw anything like she does and her drawing is beautiful. But I have my own thing, so I could do my own thing with it.
0: I can see that influence on some of the like wide panels that show the the landscape. Although what she does often is uh, split up a, a, a particular home of some kind, and you, you see the various you split it, see it compartmentalized in various panels. Was that a consideration for you, or why did you go for the sort of I guess realist mode in depicting this story?
1: Well, I just didn't know any other way to do it. Yeah. I mean, it's just it it it's it, it was, there was nothing you know calculated of like I think I'm going to you know disseminate the message through a series of panels that I'm not I don't do that. Well,
0: allow me some contrition for implying some pretentious uh, preordained ideal on your part. <laughs> no,
1: <laughs> no, I've been getting that question a lot, uh, and uh, you know from from people who analyze comics a lot, and and I. I just don't analyze my work like that. I I just, especially this this story is like the story I have. Literally, I tell you from the first day I went to work there, I had the feeling that this was a story that I had to tell. So this is you, a very you knew that
0: from the very first day on the job. Yes, yeah. and
1: and and. So everything about it is very kind of visceral and gut level for me. So it's not like, you know, I think I will express the miasma of the 70s through a series of panels that, you know. When when did you
0: first know that you were meant to be a storyteller?
1: I don't know. My mother and her best friend used to sit around telling stories when I was a kid. And I think that had had an effect on me. And I always liked writing. Um, And I really didn't do comic I mean I loved comics and my dad was an amateur cartoonist who taught me how to draw. He was my first teacher and I I was like, you know, sort of like you know, uh, nursed at the bosom of Mad magazine. And I'm talking like the the, the Ballantine pocket books yeah. uh, reproductions of the the 50s Harvey Kurtzman mad you yes. know starchy and all that it was like you know i was reading that when i was like 6 you know yeah.
0: the pre-newman days <laughs> yeah uh
1: and and um, peanuts and old new yorker cartoons and and al cap and pogo and all i just fell in love with the the graphic quality of that work it was so wonderful and so I, but i hadn't really done comic strips in fact sherry Flanagan, who was my editor at the lampoon basically told me in a very short lesson how to do a comic strip you know you like you got your punchline and you work backwards and yeah. i was like i just like got it you know before that i actually she the, this work that she the first work she bought from me when i was still a waitress was these these uh, cartoon, I'd draw these cartoon people and then I'd look at them and I'd sort of make up a story around them and I'd write a monologue, whatever that was they were saying and I would just like write it around them in a block of text around oh. them
0: That would explain the circular uh, text around the coffee cup yeah. and this and so forth yeah. yeah,
1: in a way and and so she was buying those for me and she said these are great but you know you could also do this and I was like oh okay I get it
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> so um, you know from that point it was like it was just a natural comic strips storytelling was kind of a natural thing for me.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm curious, I mean, I know you Actually had a regular uh, regular strip at, at, at the Voice and and of course the Lampoon and all that. Um, I've talked with a lot of uh, uh, artists. You know, I've been fortunate to talk with Berkeley Breath and uh, Chris Square, and you know they generally talk about this period where they just can't do the daily grind anymore and they really want to kind of uh, push their art to a to a higher stand. And I'm wondering, you know, what was that point for you?
1: Well you know i i never did a daily strip and i uh i did a monthly strip for for 17 and i did pages occasionally for for the voice and i i did a monthly strip for the lampoon for a while called famous waitress school and um so that's that's like that's nothing like the pressure of doing something daily but um and i also did have done strips occasionally for the L.A. Times um, Sunday Opinion page, which are not editorial comics, but they're just um, social commentary on sort of Southern California-centric topics, and that's really fun. But they're it's limited in scope; it's like eight or nine panels at the most. And um, so, having having this whole long manuscript to play with has been really liberating in terms of just opening it up, you know. And you can you can choose to you know. Uh, you, the, the the every any every sentence in the manuscript argues with me it says I want to be a full page and i say no you you get to be a panel if you 're lucky yeah um but it's you know it's fun mapping it out. And playing with the the pacing and the the rhythm of it, and still trying to keep it under control, so it won't be 800 pages.
0: Which of the uh, uh, pages or paragraphs argued most uh, profusely to be part of the uh, graphic novel version of this? I mean,
1: you know, I wrote them all, and so it's my own fault. They all they all. You know, think they ought all. The, to. All the
0: babies were screaming for your yeah. attention. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But was there and then
1: some of the babies get, you know, you have to kill some of the babies. Of course, so.
0: of course. Were there any that you uh, you just tried to uh, realize that just couldn't actually work, that just couldn't make it? Any, any, yeah. any things you regret? Well,
1: no, no, not really. There, I mean, there's a, a one or two characters I had to excise completely, but they were very minor. Um, there were a few. One or two people who work there who I wish I could have worked into it, but um, there's a a very dear friend of mine who who started working there shortly after I worked there who still works there and is a career waitress and a a wonderful person and incredibly hardworking and such an enormous force of nature that I could not fit her into this story because she needs her own book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So I I do regret that, but it it wouldn't, it wouldn't, it would have been a disservice both to her and to the rest of the story.
0: Yeah. I uh, read a Los Los Angeles Times profile uh, where you alluded to arguing with Tom Devlin, your editor at Drawn and Quarterly. And I also saw a, uh, I found a PW interview you did where uh, you said that he wanted you to take out uh, politically incorrect aspects from the book. Uh, I'm wondering, what battles did you have to fight? And do you feel that our more sanitized age of the present often prevents us from understanding some of the uglier qualities of the I do. I, no, I, do. The 70s? I do, because...
1: Yeah. Um, the, I mean, I understand their point of view, and yeah. they really gave me so much freedom, and they didn't give me any crap about anything else, and they've just been so wonderful. It's been just like a dream working with them. But um, in the 70s you know hip liberal white people would bandy about politically incorrect uh,
0: epithets and epithets
1: with, with everyone knowing that they were doing that because they were being ironic because of course I'm liberal and white and I understand totally that you know that we have kept you know, we have oppressed people for for centuries, and I'm not down with that man. <laughs> so I can bandy these terms about at will, and it's just bullshit. And of course, it's horrible. Yeah. But it's like that's the context. That's the way it was. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but they they were like, eh, no, can't do that. People will get upset. And I mean, I had well, to. Argue. Well, well,
0: do people need to get upset to understand what a time I, was like? I
1: would I would say yes, but uh, you know, there's some especially you know, if it's
0: in the service of storytelling.
1: It wasn't anything that really was so critical. You know, I mean, you it I you have to choose your battles. So, you know, and and it's fine. And and they've been so great otherwise. It's just a minor thing. Well,
0: this does have me wondering if it's even possible to truly convey the accuracy of a time because of political correctness because of people sort of saying, "Well, uh, a certain section of our readers, perhaps not uh, negligible enough to Im- impact sales, is going to be offended by your use of epithets and so forth. I mean, you know, I mean, what 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 does the artist do in such a, such a scenario? I mean, scenario? May,
1: may, perhaps it's my fault. Perhaps I should have like couched those particular bits of dialogue in some way that, so that people... Norman
0: Mailer's are, Fug.
1: Yeah, no, not... not. <laughs> that would have been worse, maybe. Yeah, yeah Fug's awful. I know. I know, Norman Mailer's awful, but... Um, um, I mean, just like, you know, maybe I should have set it, set it up with captions or something to, like, indicate that, you know, actually... Little footnotes. It, it, I, yeah, this irony, this is supposed to be ironic, and I don't know. Uh. I
0: don't know. Uh, maybe part two will
1: be for
0: that, I suppose.
1: Um, there may be some stuff they're going to have trouble with in part two. <laughs> Especially if it's
0: start. um <laughs> You described at the very beginning growing up in a high mesa in San Diego, which you compared to living on a tabletop in the middle of an unshaded picnic area, given all the busing that you did in the sprawling expanse of Oakland and San Francisco. How did that experience compare to San Diego? What did San Diego do to prepare you for that? And what would be the ideal public park metaphor for that later existence?
1: Boy, that's quite a question. Public park metaphor. Yes. Um, well, uh, Oakland... I really didn't spend that much time in San Francisco because uh, as, we're, as of course, the New York Times has now told us, like, thank God they came along and gave us this important information that Oakland is the new Brooklyn. <laughs> Oakland that's news to
0: me because I'm in Brooklyn right now. <laughs>
1: Oakland has always been... You know, Oakland to San Francisco has always been as as Brooklyn is to to Manhattan. It's yeah, always yeah, been that yeah. way, and now you know, in the same way, Oakland is being discovered and gro- being groovy and hip. But they are in um, here,
0: so I, I know what you mean.
1: But uh, we just didn't spend that much time in San Francisco, um, and uh, I would say that compared to an unshaded picnic area um, of San Diego, that Oakland was more like being in the redwoods, you know, um, shadier and, and the, really the quality of light is very different, f- uh, in Northern California than it is in Southern California. Everything in Southern California is very harsh, white and yellow and, and not so, like, yeah, there, I mean, no, I wouldn't say the word harsh, harsh at the
0: top of a hill, I think.
1: Yeah. It's just like blinding white light outside. It's bright all the time. And, and it's in, in, um, the Bay Area, it's it's more subdued, it's Diffuse and diffused, all that. Yeah. yeah, and it's the the sky really is this kind of per, more purpley shade of blue than Southern California.
0: Yeah. Um, at one point, you're attracted to this line cook who fancies himself a poet, and this attraction immediately wanes once you read the guy's poetry. Uh, you know, I'm wondering, you know, how art was. This attraction for you and other people when you were, I suppose. Well, I wanted every
1: yeah. every guy I saw to be my next genius boyfriend. <laughs> you know, my genius artist boyfriend. I finally, you know, met my genius artist boyfriend and married him. So that was great. <laughs>
0: yeah. What are the uh, the food at the Imperial? I mean, that's pretty romanticized. The crab sandwiches, the best home fries you ever. Well, that's ever the wrote.
1: most romantic part about it. And the yeah. food. The, see, the thing in the in the mid 70s diner food was just you know nasty greasy diner food there wasn't any there wasn't anything there wasn't gluten free back then no there well there wasn't there was no middle ground between low and high and and there weren't fancy breakfast brunch places then in fact i think mama's royal cafe really revolutionized that um that whole movement and it was it was it was a great unsung hero of the the foodie movement that's never gotten its due because it was it came along right at the same time as Chez Panisse and that whole Bay Area explosion of of gourmet food and um it was just a revelation you know you're used to going to coffee shops and having you know them pour you like uh, orange juice from concentrate and and these kind of styrofoam white bread toast and frozen hash fries, and that was just the way it was, and you went into this place, and, and you couldn't even get good coffee. Good coffee wasn't a thing then. There was yeah. just, like, Folgers, you know? And so, you know, you went into this place, and this, you know, funky old restaurant, and, and they served you this incredibly fresh food with, like, fresh fruit, and this dark, rich coffee with real cream. I had never even had real cream. I would barely had butter. I grew up on margarine, so butter was like a, just a mind blower <laughs> so and and they, they used to use real linen napkins yeah. so it just everything about it was try to
0: find a place that has that today yeah,
1: yeah. well they don't even have it anymore yeah. unfortunately but it you know it just was like you know this luxury experience what do you
0: think we could take away from 1978 anything i mean does it offer any kind of um... Qualities in terms of evolving as a as a, either a young person or as a young artist that we just can't possibly even. You know experience what's today?
1: you know what's different is that that I that I really wish was still the same was this aspects of the sexual revolution in which you could go and sleep with anyone yeah. and not be judged for it I mean you know nobody thought a thing about it it was like a constant sexual si dough in the restaurant I never slept with my co-workers because i liked the job too much and i didn't want it to get awkward but that didn't stop me from you know experimenting with all the customers but nobody's nobody's called you a slut or a whore i mean nobody thought anything about it or they rated really...
0: you on one of those online services these days that's what they now do yes yeah, yeah. but, in, in, but
1: <laughs> specifically women you yeah. know like men were st- are still allowed to like cat around and be you know boys will be boys and you know, that's what they do. And no, no.
0: Men are now actually being hashtagged and rated and Oh, well, that's so true. So there's, 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 uh, there's a little bit of... There's a little bit of that, too. Yeah. But
1: but the whole, like, you know, slut-shaming thing is, like, that's... I would like to see that disappear because it's not fair. Your, your sex life is no one's business but your own. You know, if you want to go out and make a bunch of mistakes like I did you were free to do it then. And I just wish that people were free to do that without having society judge them. It's ridiculous. Judging
0: you on a Facebook post from 12 years ago and using that uh, as a kind of uh, consideration for employment later on. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's a good end uh, for this conversation. Mimi, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to chat. Well, thank you. Fantastic. All right.
1: first part of the journey I was looking at all the life There were plans